The opinions and views expressed in the OC Show with Cameron Jackson do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Force is strong with you. A powerful Sith you will become. Henceforth, you shall be known as Darth Bagrand. Thank you, my master. Ah, that's right. Good old Darth Agron is back in the house. Welcome to the OC Show. I am your host, Cameron Jackson. Happy to be here. Happy to be on the air today. Today is July 29th, 2008. You're listening to KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Your faithful host. I hope your lattes and SUVs are treating you well. And yes, I did feel the earthquake. Thank you very much. Uh, why the lovely uh, Empire Strikes Back music? Well, because Darth Agron is uh, sort of in the house today. Um, I have a very interesting guest that will... Um, I pre-recorded this interview last night. He was not able to come in today, but he was very gracious enough to come in last night. His name is Stephen C. Smith, and he is the author, webmaster, uh, writer, producer, etc., etc., of IrvineTattler.com. Uh, IrvineTeddler.com is a, it basically is a government watchdog website. And Stephen takes time out of his busy schedule to uh, look at what Larry Agrin and Beth Crom and Suki Kang and Stephen Choi and Christina Shea to keep tabs on what they're doing over there at the Irvine City Hall. And uh, he has very good insight on Irvine politics. He was actually a big proponent of and worked for Larry Agron for many years. And um, so he kind of knows how Larry Agron works. He knows um, how Christina Shea works. He did some work for her. And he just has a very intimate knowledge of how Irvine City Hall works. And so um, his interview is about uh, 28 minutes long, but it's well worth uh, every minute. It's very informative, and his website is very informative. I, I have put a link on my uh, blog for that, and it's www.theocshow889.blogspot.com. Don't worry, I did get a new email address, though, or a website address. So um, that will be coming up soon. I'll let you know what that is when it's up and running. Anyway, uh, you can check out his website through mine, or you can just go straight to his, which is IrvineTattler.com. Just how it sounds, like Tattletale, but I think that's only the Tattler. That's just my guess on it. I didn't really ask him that. And uh, what else? Oh, yeah, and also I podcasted last week's show. So if you go to my blog, uh, once again, www.ocshow889.blogspot.com. In the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the OC Show podcast. Click on uh, the link for that, and you can get last week's show. And I will also put on this week's show as soon as it is uh, in the can, so to speak. So uh, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Later on in the show, after the interview, I'm going to do a reading from the book of Sandy Trujillo. And I will also uh, talk a little bit about Martin Wiskell and his brilliant investigative reporting over at the Orange County Register. Um, there is some sarcasm there. And also, I'd like to talk about uh, vanity at the Big Box Church with Pastor Greg Laurie and the death of his son. 
So um, it's going to be a great show. I'm going to go ahead and start the interview now. Like I said, Stephen C. Smith from the Irvine Tattler. Um, check it out. It's good. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Cameron. It's a privilege. Thank you. Um, I'm looking at your website now. I looked at it uh, before we came in together. It, it is a very well done website. Um, TheIrvineTattler.com. What was your what, what brought this about? How did you start this website? Well, first of all, I should clarify that so far you're right. I have written everything, but that's not because I'm greedy. So if somebody wants to come forward and help <laughs> me and they're willing to do reasonably objective uh, investigative journalism, by all means, I'll take the help. Um, to, to make a very long story short, I had uh, been a part of Larry Agron's inner circle for 11 years and was the, the first of many in his inner circle to renounce him over his lapsing of his uh, ethical uh, beliefs. And over time, I found that although there was a lot of information out there about what was going on at City Hall, that uh, it wasn't easy for Irvine residents to come to one place and find out what was going on. If you went to the LA Times or Orange County Register or OC Weekly websites, you could do an archive search and you might have to pay for some articles, but you'd have to take the initiative. Uh, if you wanted to go watch council meetings, you, you know, you can look in the city's archives online, but you have to know what you're looking for. And so my feeling was if you created a one-stop site where interested Irvine residents could go to find out about what's happening at City Hall, it would be a very handy resource for the public. And one of the things I do in my spare time is I build websites. And um, so this was you know, an opportunity for me to sort of practice my, my web design skills, but really was foremost was to provide a one-stop resource for the citizens of Irvine. Now, you, were, you mentioned that you were within Larry's inner circle for 11 years. Talk briefly about what happened. How is it that you fell out of that circle? Did you fall out? Did you take yourself out? How did that work? I took myself out, and again, a very long story for a limited time, but uh, I joined him in 1988 as a council aide for one of his uh, uh, allies, Cameron Cosgrove, and over the years I evolved to be one of his most loyal constituents. Um, I was there from the very beginning all the way to the bitter end in the 1992 Democratic presidential primary race where Larry was running for the Democratic nomination for president, didn't win. Um, he then started a uh, program in 1994-95 called City Vote, which was tried to create a non-binding urban presidential primary. I was very involved with that. Uh, when we started to uh, battle the proposed international airport at El Toro, we started Project 99. And um, I wrote a, co-wrote with Larry a lot of the documents that we did. And... Uh, in 1998, when he returned to office, I was his counsel aide. The reason that uh, I left him was that he was involved in leaking uh, voicemail messages that Councilwoman, well, at the time, Mayor Christina Shea, had left with another council member. Uh, she was distraught because her teenage daughter had been detained by the police department uh, on a minor drug charge. She had talked to uh, the investigating sergeant and got one story. She then talked to the chief of police and got a different story. So she contacted one of the other council members, Dave Christensen, who had been a police officer in Chicago, for advice. And, of course, she was upset because she's a mother. So uh, Dave wasn't answering his uh, city-issued cell phone. He left, or she left a series of messages there. 
Uh, but unbeknownst to her, what Dave had done was taken those voicemail messages and given them to Larry Agron. And Dave Christensen subsequently stated in public session at the city council that Larry and his wife and others were involved in taking those recordings to the local newspapers. Uh, the Orange County Register published the transcripts of those recordings on September 11th, 1999. And when I saw them in the paper, I realized Larry had to be behind it. And I mailed him my resignation as his council aide. Uh, if it had not been true, if he had not been involved, he could have picked up the phone and called me, but he never did. What about, um, now, You did you work for Christina after that? I was involved with uh, Christina politically a couple of times. Um, obviously, I had a day job, and so my involvement uh, became very limited. I was briefly a counselor for her in 2003. In 2006, I served on the Finance Commission uh, as her appointee for a full year. So, um, you know, um, you know, off and on, I've, I've been associated with uh, Councilwoman Shea. And how long has your site been up now? Uh, I think about January or February is when it started, somewhere in there. What has the reaction been to your site, especially from the different council people, including like Larry Agron and Beth Crom, who might not exactly like what you're putting on there? Well, Beth Crom has referred to the tattler a couple of times during council meetings and has very specifically accused uh, Christina Shea of somehow orchestrating the content on the website. Uh, nobody has any say into the content on that website other than me. And there have been things that I've published on there that I disagreed with uh, Christina Shea and Stephen Troy, uh, votes that they took. Um, there's also a gentleman who's shown up at a few council meetings by the name of Todd Gallinger, who's an Irvine lawyer. Um, he's, I've had witnesses who say that they've seen him at, at social events with uh, Councilman Suki Kang, an ally of Larry and Beth's. Um, and he's come up a few times now and has accused the, the tattler of, of investigating him and his family, of uh, uh, being in cahoots with Christina Shea and, and various other fantastical and, and false allegations. So they're taking notice. And I think, too, the important thing is I've had very favorable feedback from uh, the reporters at the L.A. Times and the Orange County Register because, you know, as, as diligent uh, as they may wish to be, they just don't know their way around City Hall as well as somebody who's worked there. And I worked at City Hall in various capacities for, oh, gosh, um, you know, probably added up 14, 15 years. Well, and you did get a very nice mention from Stephen Greenhut last, uh, on the past Sunday in his article on the Great Park. Yeah, actually, he's had two columns, one on Sunday on the proposed Great Park ordinance that'll be on the ballot in November, and then he had one on Monday uh, about the uh, privacy ordinance, which will also be on the November ballot. And it's, you know, it's rather ironic because my affiliation is nonpartisan. I'm very independently minded, and Steve is, you know, as libertarian as they come. I read his columns, and I, I disagree with him 99% mm. of the time. Mm. But when it comes to Irvine, it seems that we're totally in sync, that we believe that the best government is transparent, open, and honest government. And we are, and that's a great segue to talking about this privacy ordinance that Larry Agron has uh, come up with. And in my opinion, he's come up with it to block Christina Shea from becoming mayor. Maybe he has another motive for it, but that's what it seems like on the surface to me. Can you talk about the privacy ordinance, what he's trying to accomplish in that, and what you think he, he's, what, what his ultimate goal is? Well, uh, again, long story short, um, 
if you look back at, at what happened earlier this year with Measure H, the anti-lobbying ordinance, and we may talk about that, I think this is intended to be the same thing. It's just a, a straw woman in this case to use for uh, sending out slate mailers uh, smearing Christina Shea and her associates on the uh, ballot this November. But the other thing, too, which I think is important is that uh, Mr. Agron has been criticized by you know, the Orange County Register, the OC Weekly, the LA Times for being very secretive. And in particular, there was an incident in late 2007, early 2008, where in his role as chairman of the Great Park Corporation, he tried to hire a friend of his from Chicago to be the new CEO of the Great Park. Well, um, he would not allow Christina Shea or Stephen Choi to see the resumes of the other applicants, so they had to go to court, file a lawsuit for the right to see those resumes because he wouldn't release them. The court said that they had no, the, the Great Park Corporation had no legal basis to withhold them, and so they basically settled and they allowed uh, Shea and Choi to see those resumes. So when I saw this privacy ordinance come forward. I think of it more as a secrecy ordinance. Uh, it's being spun as uh, somehow Christina Shea got hold of email addresses at City Hall and she used them to send out a newsletter and that if we don't act immediately to protect any quote-unquote personal information on file at City Hall, uh, to use Larry's words, pornographers and Viagra peddlers might come to City Hall and get children's email addresses. The reality is, is that if you look at the language in the proposed ordinance, it, it dresses up and it talks all about email addresses. But then there's also this vague phrase of, of other personal information, and it says on a case-by-case -case basis, city staff will evaluate whether or not to release that information in response to a request from the public. The problem with that is that the California Public Records Act is very specific about what circumstances uh, information can be withheld from the public. The purpose of the Public Records Act is to keep government as open and transparent as possible. So what? So what's what's Agron getting at? What's his end game? Why all of a sudden make make these things private? Is he just trying to thwart other council people that he does not like, in the instance of Christina Shea, from being able to use these databases for legitimate purposes? It's more than just databases. It's any personal information on file at City Hall, any document. Um, you know, there are millions of documents on file in the city's online archives letters from the public. So does it become subjective for them to decide Ex exactly. what... Exactly. And there have been newspaper articles who have quoted uh, experts on the California Public Records Act who have said the city has no legal basis to withhold that information. If you if you look at what happened with the CEO search, the search committee, headed by Larry Agron... And this is the CEO for the Great Park? Correct. Okay. They voted, after this all became public, they voted to suspend their search for a new CEO until December of 2008 after the November election. So my theory is, is that if this secrecy ordinance becomes law, Mr. Agron will use it as a basis to withhold resumes and any other information relating to how he selects the CEO. If he selects uh, okay, anybody else go. who's a friend of his, a go. political supporter of his, he will argue that resumes contain personal information, which is exactly what he said when this all blew up. Resumes are confidential personal information. We cannot release this. We'll get people fired if we release this. 
So that's what I think this is all about, and I think it's all about so it's, it, ultimately it's so that he can maintain his grip and control over the great park and and how that plays out. Not just the Great Park, but City Hall in general. All right, all right. If you're just now joining us, uh, this is the OC Show. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. My guest today is Stephen C. Smith. He is the author, writer, webmaster of the Irvine Tattler. It's irvinetattler.com, no the. And uh, he's joining me today in studio to talk about uh, what's going on in Irvine with City Hall specifically. That's what his website tackles. Um, Let's talk about Measure H. Measure H, we'll just give the, the listener some background on what Measure H is all about. Well, Measure H, or as I called it on the website, Preparation H, because that tells you what I thought of it. Again, long story short, about two years ago, uh, Mr. Agron and his political allies on the council, Beth Crom and Suki Kang, concocted this story that uh, Christina Shea, was a lobbyist and mm-hmm. was seeking business from developers in the city of Irvine. I have seen absolutely no evidence at all to say that she ever was hired as a lobbyist, was compensated to be a lobbyist. It's nonsense. Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you go back two years before that, uh, Agron's campaign manager, Ed Dornan, who has subsequently passed away, it was documented by OC Weekly. He was working as an unpaid lobbyist for several interests who were trying to get business at City Hall. Anyway, to make a long story short... Was that the trees of Great Park? Oh, not just the trees, but there was a, an energy company called ENCO that Enco, was trying to get That's right. a no-bid contract at City Hall. I and, remember and reporting the city that. manager at the time came forward and admitted that Mr. Dornan had bragged to her that he stood to make around, I think it was $800,000 if ENCO got the contract. In any case, uh, what they brought forward to supposedly stop this evil lobbyist, Christina Shea, was an ordinance that banned anybody who worked as a lobbyist from being on the city council. And ironically, in its early form, uh, among its more draconian measures, is it probably would have required the Orange County Register or any media publication who opined about city politics to register as lobbyists. And the register actually had their attorney send a letter to the city saying, "Uh uh-uh, and that section got taken out. But again, it shows you how they operate. Anyway, that ordinance became law, and then uh, this year what happened is out of the clear blue sky, Beth Crom agendizes this and says, we need to hold a special election to have the voters of Irvine approve the anti-lobbying ordinance. Uh, So the city budgeted $200,000 to put this on the June ballot to have the voters approve what was already on the books. And what's more ironic is that it doesn't even contain a penalty. So the whole thing is meaningless. It says if you are lobbying while you're on the city council, you have to talk about it with the city attorney. Shows you how big a joke it was. So in any case, I predicted at the time on the tattle, I said this is going to be used as just another excuse to smear Christina Shea with false lobbying charges, just like they did two years ago. And sure enough, just before the election, there were two mailers who came out, uh, one sent by Beth Crom, another one sent by this Todd Gallinger fellow, uh, accusing Christina Shea of being a lobbyist. The the one from uh, Beth Crump was Ed Royce, the teacher Ed Royce, who always writes. I don't I, think his name was Ed Royce. I think it was Ed Pope. 
Uh, I, I think Ed it's, Pope. Ed Royce was a state assemblyman or a state senator. Ed, Ed, Ed is Ed Pope, Pope the teacher? Yes. Ed okay. Pope is sorry. The teacher. There you go. So, po- so who is Pope? I, I've been around Agronista land longer than you, <laughs> so I kind of tend to remember these names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he was a former uh, teacher in the city of Irvine, and uh, is he just could, a is he just a crony for those two? Well, I don't want to use the word crony, but the reality is is that if you go back and you look at slate mailers that have been sent out over the years by Agron and hometown voter guide and Ed Dornan, his name's been on Ed there. Ed Pope comes up over and over again with variations of the same theme saying I'm I, I regret to inform you that, that mayoral or council member candidate X is a naughty person and that's basically what they do uh, the interesting thing about the other mailer by Todd Gallinger is it was paid for by three thousand dollars that was laundered out of the Orange County Young Democrats fund Gallinger set up a fund called yes on measure H they transferred three thousand dollars into that fund and then they went and paid Kenny the printer, which is the printer company that Agron always uses, right. to pay for this mailer. They went to uh, Irvine voters accusing Shea of being a lobbyist seeking business from Irvine developers. So uh, what happened with Measure H? It passed 80 to 20. I mean, of course it was. As, as my wife says, it's like asking people to vote on whether or not you like puppies. Do you want, do you want lobbyists on the city council? No. But it was all just an orchestrated scheme to use $200,000 of taxpayer dollars the stage of a phony special election just to smear Christina Shea in anticipation of this November election. So they're basically using that as the run-up to be able to to say bad, awful, naughty things about Christina for November? Yeah, and it, she's running for mayor against Suki Kang. And I think if you look at uh, the Measure H as, as the, the test case, that explains why you have two more ordinances now coming to the ballot in November, this Great Park Ordinance and this secrecy ordinance. It's the exact same thing. Now talk about the Great Park Ordinance. The Great Park Ordinance, uh, again, it takes resolutions that were adopted by the council two years ago and puts them on the ballot for voter ratification. But what's really interesting is that if you read through some of the language that's been added to this, there, there is language which says that the general fund, which is the city's operating budget, will not be used to pay for the Great Park. That is a promise we made all the way at the very beginning, is that taxpayer dollars will not be used at the Great Park. And you know who echoed that when I had her in studio was Beth Crom. Yeah. But, they, but they're hiding something on it. They, they can use, they're, the way that they word it, they can actually pull the money from somewhere else. Is that not correct? Well, if you look at I think it's Section 5. I don't have it in front of me. But if you look at it, there I'll, are several I'll take, I'll take your exceptions <laughs> that say, well, you cannot use general fund money except for this, 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 and this. And so uh, they've, they've you know, layered into this, as they usually always do, ways to work around it. Um, but the other thing, too— As a taxpayer, then— somebody who lives in Irvine like myself, what, how am I going to see that impact me later on down the line? Well, the, I think what's critical to understand here is the whole financing mechanism for the Great Park. And to shamelessly plug an article currently on the website, there's an article uh, entitled The Day Agron Was Censured, which goes back to 2000 when we were still battling the airport. It was still going to be an airport. And the city was desperately fighting the county, and the only thing we had going for us was our credibility. And at the time, the city's um, strategy was something that at the time was called the Millennium Plan. If you take a look at what Tustin did with the LTA base, with the district out there and housing and mixed use, the Millennium Plan is basically what Tustin is doing on steroids. 
uh, Agron's Project 99 did a poll in which they found most people preferred a park. So he and his uh, slate mates running for election in November 2000 that year started promoting the idea of a great park instead of the Millennium Plan. However, the pro-airport people and a lot of people who were anti-airport but fiscally responsible were concerned whether or not this was going to be financially viable. The city commissioned a study. The study came back and it made a lot of promises saying that we can build a great park for $200 million. Today it's up to over $1.3 billion and counting. And it said that the great park would generate $20 million a year in revenue. That's not happening either. Um, and when the city council looked at it, four of the five members looked at it and said, there's something wrong with this. A lot of the assumptions were flawed. They questioned the people who did the study, found that they didn't do a lot of diligence on the, uh, the, the study. And so they voted in closed session and said, we're not going to release this. This is bogus, and we don't want to have our reputation ruined. Agron took that study and took it out of closed session. He brought it to a candidate's forum, and he gave it to a member of the press with the Orange County Register. The Register published this story and said, Great park, financially viable, you know, only costs $200 million, it'll raise $20 million a year. Totally false. Subsequent events have shown us it's totally false. They said at the time it was only going to cost $200 million. Exactly. Aren't we up into the billions now? Um, I think it's somewhere around $1, $1.5 at this point in right. county. The proposed sports park itself, the last number I heard was over $100 million alone. And what, they've been, what they have been saying is that the developers are going to fund most of this. Is that and correct? And that's the problem. And actually getting back to when I was on the Finance Commission in 2006 and we reviewed the proposed Great Park budget, Beth Crom was running around at the time saying that she had negotiated this new agreement with Lennar that was going to bring in a total of $1.4 billion in revenue. And I asked staff on the record in a commission meeting, I said, where did these numbers come from? They couldn't tell me. They said that these numbers were being delivered at the dais by Beth Crom, Larry Agron, and Sookie Kang. And as far as I can determine, it was all just made up. Staff eventually came back with some spreadsheets with some very generic numbers and I said, but isn't this predicated upon Lennar actually going forward to build? And they said, yes. And I said, what happens if Lennar doesn't build? They wouldn't answer the question, and they finally said, well, it will be up to the city council what to do. I think anybody with common sense knows that if you're building your whole, whole financing scheme for the Great Park on taxes and fees and assessments being levied on those neighborhoods surrounding the Great Park, and those neighborhoods don't get built, you have no money coming in. And to this day, Agron and Crom and Kang are still in denial. They have grudgingly and reluctantly on occasion admitted that if Lennar doesn't build, they can't go forward. But it was just a couple of months ago that Sookie Kang pronounced at the dais, we are ready to build. Larry Agron just gave his State of the Great Park speech and was saying, you know, all these great things are ready to move forward. But the reality is, is that if you go out to the Great Park right now where the balloon is, and you see that preview park, all that grass is temporary. There's no sprinkler system because there's no water system out there. There's no permanent sewer system. It's all porta potties. There's no permanent electrical system. It's all generators. They don't have the money to go forward. If they did, they would have built the sports park by now, but they don't have it. So to get back to your question, what do the taxpayers have to be alert for? They have to be alert for as the money runs out, because they're under $100 million left from Lennar. As the money comes, you know, runs out, and if Lennar is not building and they're not getting the revenue anticipated from those neighborhoods, 
They're either going to have to stop and do nothing and leave it the way it is now, or they're going to have to find the money somewhere else. And one of the places might be the general fund or the city's asset management plan, which is used for rehab of city infrastructure. So it sounds like um, as long as the economy is in the tank, the money at the rate that they are going, because the, the last I read was that they've spent something close to $100 million just on PR. Oh, I don't think it's all on PR. Um, you know, it's basically there was $200 million coming in from Lennar. They've received that. Beyond that, uh, they have taken a loan, and I'm not sure the exact number, um, $80 million, $180 million, from the city's redevelopment agency. It's basically a loan from one city fund to another city fund that has to be paid back one day. So on paper, they'll tell you they have $3 million some hard dollars. But the reality is, in the bank, in reality, they only have the original $200 million they got from Lennar. And about half of that has been spent on design and whatever else they're doing out there. You notice the runways are still there. You know, they, four or five years, they haven't even managed to tear up the runways yet. Um, in terms of what was spent on public relations, they hired uh, about seven or eight years ago a uh, political consulting mm. firm named Ford & Mulrick, uh, former uh, allies of Larry Agron, who like me, have subsequently renounced him, have told me that Fordham Ulrich strategizes political campaigns. Obviously, that would be a conflict of interest if they were compensated. It would be a crime, actually. So there's nothing on paper to indicate that Fordham Ulrich really is strategizing his political campaigns. Instead, what they get is, you know, the big no-bid contracts to run the Great Park PR. They were doing City Hall PR for a while. Well, I was on the Finance Commission in 2006, though. A lot of that was moved off budget. They set up uh, a big subcontractor fund for the Ken Smith Design Studio so that a lot of the PR work is now done out of Ken Smith off the books with a private company where the public cannot see it. So how much is really being spent on PR? We don't know because we can't get to those records. But if the district attorney would get off his duff and start subpoenaing these records, then maybe somebody could get a look at what's really going on. You know, we only have a few minutes left. What do you think, in Agron's mind, because you, you know him very well, uh, in his mind, when it comes to the Great Park, what is his end game? What does he, what is, is his vision that someday they build a huge statue of him <laughs> <laughs> at the crossroads of the, of the, of the runways and, and, you know, with his hand up in the sky looking at, looking, you know, something that you would see in a communist type com country or what, what is it that, what is it that he wants? What's well, driving I, I, I him? I doubt it's the statue because he'd be spending eternity covered with pigeon poop, but, um, you know, I was with him again when we started this battle before whatever it was ticked in his head that sent him over the edge towards the dark side. Um, I, I think that originally, sincerely, he did want to start the airport. I think he thought the Great Park was a good idea. But I think there was a point where it just kind of tripped, and it became less about creating a legacy for the city of Irvine, the, the, the Great Park, and more about perpetuating his power in office. I know that the 1990 election that he lost that forced him for office was, I think, for him very deeply embarrassing. And I think that's something he never, ever wants to happen again. So I think what has happened is it's become less about providing a great park to the public and the people of Orange County, and it's become more about using the great park as an instrument to stay in power. And I think if people go and listen to that audio tape on my website 
of the 2000 Censure, even though it runs three hours, the meeting is three hours, you hear Larry Agron at his naked and at his worst, and you can see how he's manipulating the Great Park just for the purpose of getting himself elected mayor, to the point he even brings up his son, Kenny, who sits there for over a half hour um, attacking the other council members, insulting the city attorney, being generally disruptive, speaking far beyond the five minutes the public speakers are allotted. You listen to that and you think about this is 2000, this is, this is right at the height of the airport battle, and you hear him talking the way he is, and you realize it was not about the Great Park with him. It was about getting into office and keeping power. And that is one of the most dangerous types of politicians to have in my mind because they're willing to do anything to stay in power. And that's the kind of thing that I'm happy you are talking about on your site, IrvineTattler.com. Uh, is there, is it, it's just you. You're a one-man operation at this point? Unfortunately, yes. Um, you know, as I said, and I have journalistic standards here. Obviously, I'm, I'm writing opinion, but it's backed up with facts, a lot of documents, a lot of audio and video, so people can see and judge for themselves. Uh, but if other people wanted to come forward and they were willing to live up to those same standards, and even if they wanted to provide a different point of view, I'm open for that, so long as it's documented with facts and documents that show that what you're saying is a reasonable basis, and it just isn't more baseless political smears. And what's a good way that people can get in touch with you? Uh, my email address is at the top of the website. Uh, the address is info, I-N-F-O, at IrvineTattler.com. And that's I-R-V-I-N-E-T-A-T-T-L-E-R, IrvineTattler.com. Stephen C. Smith, thank you so much for coming in studio today. I do appreciate it. Well, thank you, Cameron. Again, it was a real privilege. Great. And that was the interview with Stephen C. Smith. So from the Irvine Tatler, IrvineTatler.com. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm going to take a quick break. And when I come back, uh, reading from the book of Sandy Trujillo. Should be interesting. Be right back. Attention shoppers, if anyone is missing a rather plump set of love handles, please come to the customer service counter and claim them. The ample love handles were lost in the produce department where their former owner had purchased fruits and veggies to munch on during the big game. Thank you and have a good day. Small step number 81, snack on fruits and veggies. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to get healthy. Learn more at www.smallstep.gov. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Hi, this is NASCAR driver Reed Sorensen. When I'm driving the 41 car, I know that underinflated tires can end my day early. Maintaining the proper tire pressure is vital to me doing 180 miles per hour on the track and is equally important to you and your family when you're out on the highway. Driving on underinflated tires causes excess heat buildup, which can result in tire damage and even tire failure. So be tire smart. Check your tire pressure every month and before long trips. And always remember to buckle up. A message from the Rubber Manufacturers Association. Welcome back to the OC Show. My name is Cameron Jackson. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. That's right, right here on the beautiful campus of UCI. And I am your Superman for this next half hour because I'm the one who's going to be telling you the truth about what really happens politically in this county. This county can be a cesspool every now and then of dirty politics and dirty politicians and you name it, we can put it in the mud. But, uh, you know... 
it's kind of fun to talk about these people. I find it very interesting. I'm sure you do too. And we, uh, well, I want to get to the Sandy Trujillo thing. You know, it, 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 it's not long and drawn out by any stretch of the imagination. This stuff is it's just rich. It's ripe. It's good. What Sandy Trujillo was the secretary to George Jaramillo, and she also did secretarial work for Mike Corona. And back in uh, 2006, she met with uh, Senior Assistant Attorney General Gary Shones and a special agent from the California Bureau of Investigation. Yes, we have a CBI in <laughs> California. It just cracks me up. You know, we have all these layers of bureaucracy here. And um, they interviewed Sandy about uh, sexual harassment claims that she had against George Jaramillo, who was the former assistant sheriff. Now he's a felon, convicted felon. And the former disgraced sheriff, Mike Corona. And uh, he's soon to be convicted. And let me tell you about this guy. They've moved the trial date now to October 28th for the former disgraced sheriff, Mike Corona. And believe me, trust me, he is going to plead out. We are not going to see this trial. I like to say it each and every time. And I will continue to say it because I'm right. Anyway, so she interviews with these people, and she brings up uh, a lot of interesting tidbits about who George Jaramillo was and who Mike Corona was, or is, rather. And she, it, her story, while it's a juicy story, and we like to talk, you know, we, she talks about the fact that she had sexual contact, uh, sexual intercourse with Mike Corona, and all the juicy details, I like to see the story not so much from that point of view, but the point of view of look at how crooked and manipulative and just god-awful nasty these men were to this woman and how they used her for their own perversions. And I, that's what I want you to see. And I also want you to see and take it in the context of uh, how they ran their department just like a mafioso organization. And let's get into it right now. Uh, back in July of 1999, June or July, uh, Sandy meets with George Jaramillo and a human resource director to interview for her job. Uh, after the interview, later that day, she was pulled into George Jaramillo's office, and George sat down with her, and he explained to her that he and Sheriff Corona, whom she had also met that day, were like brothers, and that as his secretary, as his secretary, she should be loyal to three people, Assistant Sheriff Don Heidel, Sheriff Corona, and himself, meaning George Jaramillo. It, I, and it, it's like coming in and meeting the Don, and the Don is telling you, oh, I've got, a, I've got an offer you can't refuse, but you have to be loyal. You have to be loyal to only three people, Don Heidel, Sheriff Corona, and myself. Team Forever. Remember, that was Team Forever that has completely fallen apart forever. Uh, according to Mr. Trujillo, Mr. Jaramillo sexually harassed her. Mr. Jaramillo would often call her into his office, this is, of course, after she got the job, and close the door. She noted that none of the other assistant sheriffs would do the same thing. Once she was in his office, Mr. Jaramillo would boast about himself, women, and the election of Sheriff Corona and how he won that election. She, would, uh, she said he would hit on her, show her photographs of women who were nude or wearing very little clothing. Mr. Hill later learned the identities of the other woman in the photographs to be Lisa Jaramillo, Erica Hill, uh, blah, 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 blah. The two that you should know, though, are Lisa Jaramillo and Erica Hill. Very, uh, very, Google their names and you'll, you'll get to read a little bit more about them. Uh, 
Mr. Hill observed that Erica Hill would visit Mr. Jaramillo uh, weekly, and Mr. Jaramillo would ask Mr. Hill if she wanted to have a, quote, threesome with he and Mrs. Hill. Mr. Trujillo stated Mr. Jaramillo also touched her inappropriately. She explained when she first began working in the administrative office, both Sheriff Corona and Mr. Jaramillo routinely hugged her. She did not complain because she thought it was just the way they acted. However, Mr. Jaramillo began to touch her inappropriately by sticking his finger inside her shirt if she were wearing a blouse or putting his hand up her skirt. On one occasion, he bent her over his desk and rubbed up against her. She responded by slapping him and leaving his office. Afterward, he called her and said something similar to, quote, oh, you're not going to get mad at me, are you? Again, this illustrates the type of people that Corona and Jaramillo were. Yes, I know Corona's not in the room at this point, but the story and the plot thickens. But Jaramillo is a pig. He's a sexist pig. And only a man who's a pig would do this to another woman that has, uh, is, is somebody that he should trust or uh, she should trust. And he took that from her. And essentially, I mean, this is, like, this is criminal activity. If you or I went out and did that to another female against her wishes, you could be charged with a crime for this. This is not just sexual harassment. Hey, baby, come over here. I'll give you a job if you, if you have sex with me. This is touching. Putting your hand up somebody's skirt. I mean, that's a violation of the worst kind for a woman. And unfathomable. For most normal people, but these guys knew because of the power that they wielded in that office and that the media wasn't going to question anything that they did, they could do what they wanted. Ultimately, Mr. Hill spoke to the sheriff himself about Mr. Jaramillo's behavior and about the photographs that he had shown her and the fact that Mr. Hill believed Mr. Jaramillo was sleeping with Erica Hill. Erica Hill, by the way, is... Uh, Jaramillo's sister-in-law, and he supposedly has been having sex with her since she was 16. Nice. Uh, that was reported either by the week. I think that was reported by the weekly, OC Weekly. So I'm not making that one up. Uh, Sheriff Corona told her Mr. Tro- uh, Mr. Jaramillo was a sociopath and said he would talk to him about his behavior. Now, if you know somebody's a sociopath, why have them work for you? Now, I'm sure Corona would make the excuse nowadays, well, I got rid of him anyway. He's got, you know... His penance, he got fired, he got prosecuted, but that doesn't, that's beyond the point. Here he is back in 1999, 2000, you know the guy's a sociopath and let, you still have him working for you. Obviously, obviously Corona, the man, the Christian man that he is, uh, was willing to put that stuff aside for his bud. Team forever. Remember that. Team forever. During this time, Mr. Hermio repeatedly asked Mr. Hill if Human Resources had contacted her. Uh, apparently, an anonymous letter was sent to Human Resources about Mr. Uh, Jaramillo's behavior to Sandy Trujillo. Um, although she had already met with Human Resources, she denied ever being contacted. She and Mr. Jaramillo had ongoing conversations about the matter, during which Mr. Jaramillo offered her a raise, a company car, and also told her to say, make it go away. Their conversations then shifted to Mr. Jaramillo threatening to ruin her career if she didn't make it go away. Now, isn't that nice? So the, the schmuck that he is, he's in one hand giving her the carrot and in the other hand giving her the stick. And 
what's a girl like this supposed to do? Here she has the assistant sheriff, the second-hand man or third-hand man, to uh, the sheriff himself threatening her in this way. It's sickening. Sometime later, Mr. He had a second meeting with Sheriff Corona regarding the matter. Uh, she meets with Sheriff Corona to tell him what's going on. And uh, prior to the second meeting, Mr. Hill was disturbed to learn that Mr. Jaramillo had been told about the first meeting with the sheriff. So she meets with Sheriff Corona, tells him what's going on with Jaramillo. Her- uh, Corona tells Jaramillo what's going on. And then she comes to find out about it later on from Mr. Jaramillo himself. Very nice. But the plot thickens. During the second meeting, Sheriff Corona informed her that people from Human Resources were going to contact her and that she should uh, make this go away and say it didn't happen. Mr. Hill felt Sheriff Corona was telling her that if she lied and denied the allegations of sexual harassment by Mr. Jaramillo, the sheriff would protect her in more ways than one, as we will soon learn. And uh, he would make the activity stop. Uh, Shortly thereafter, she was contacted by Human Resources, and she did deny the allegations. But apparently they didn't really believe her, but what are you going to do? She denied them. She was then asked about her relationship with Mike Corona by the CBI. And here is what she had to say about that. When asked about her relationship, Mr. Hill disclosed that they had, they being she and Mike Corona, had a sexual relationship which began in the beginning of 2000 when she first met with Sheriff Corona to tell him about the problems she was having with Mr. Trujillo. The sheriff, the sheriff's response was friendly and included him making advances towards her. So here she is coming in, bearing her soul out to him. She's coming to him because she thinks that he is going to help her out against George Jaramillo, the slime bucket that he is. She comes in there, confides in the sheriff, and while he's in there, remember, he's a married man, He loves to talk about how he's married and how he's a Christian. While he's in there with her, he makes advances on her. According to Ms. Trujillo, during the meeting, Sheriff Corona kissed her. Ms. Trujillo said she did not know what to do or how to respond to his advances. The second time the sheriff made advances towards Ms. Trujillo was when she went into his office on a business matter, filling in for the sheriff's secretary. They kissed, and the sheriff placed his hand on her buttocks and led her into his private restroom where they had sex. They went on to have sex numerous times, approximately ten times over the course of a year. These are the types of guys that we are dealing with. They're sexist, and in the case of the sheriff, he's a racist, bigoted pig. They're both pigs. They use this woman. They use the power of their office. They use the influence of who they are to get sex, to get between her legs. They manipulated her, and it doesn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they were both in on it. That the conquest for one would be the conquest for the other. And maybe it was, even if it wasn't, it was probably a competition between the two. And I'm sure Corona knew he would come out on the top, because why else would he call George a sociopath? He's planting the seed. Well, George is a sociopath, and so is Corona. It's actually, Corona, it's interesting that Corona would call somebody else a sociopath because Corona himself, in my opinion, is a a full-bore sociopath. But he's planting the seed in her head that he's crazy, and then he uses that to be able to get between her legs and manipulate her to his bidding. And these 
types of guys, it's wonderful that they've finally been brought down because they are racist, sexist pigs. And that's all you need to know about Mike Corona and George Jaramillo at this point. They're a tragedy. They're one of the worst things to have happened to this county. They violated your trust and my trust. Remember this, folks. It doesn't matter what they say. It's what they did. And they did not care about you. They could have cared less about you and the safety of your lives and your families. All they were looking for was a free ride in a county vehicle, a nice pension, and a gold badge to pin on their chest so that they could get as much sex, drugs, and rock and roll as possible. Maybe not the drugs part, but you know what I'm trying to say. It was about power. It was about sex. It was about influence to these people. That's all it was about. They've all admitted it in in various ways and forms. Of course, Opie himself, the sheriff, he won't say much. He never does. He always hides behind other people. But that's what they do because they're cowards. And only a coward would do that to a woman. Only a coward. Ah, now back to the register. You know, the register is probably one of the biggest violators of our trust, the Orange County Register. And the reason I say is because they have dropped the ball on more occasions than I can count, especially, especially when it comes to the the district attorney and when it came to Mike Corona. They looked the other way. They did surface reporting meaning that Moxley over at the Weekly would would do the digging for them, and then they would do surface reporting based on that. And then they would, you know, fluff it up a little bit for their readership. And they would do puff pieces on Corona. They would do puff pieces on Michael Schroeder. They'd do puff pieces on Rakakis. They leave these people alone because the register is so incredibly afraid of losing their access to these people. And what's completely ironic about it is that the one person, the one person who has been the biggest pain in the rear end for Corona and 